Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Zamprin. We investigate ideas to increase affordable housing in Hamilton. Should the public and Catholic school systems merge? New warnings about backyard pool safety. Convicted child killer Paul Bernardo is moved. Tensions between the U.S. and China have reached new heights. And the late Phil Hartman's brother is working on an Oscar-worthy project. Learn more next year on the GMH Podcast, starting now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton Podcast on 900 CHML. Switch our discussion to housing and homelessness and encampments and affordable housing and all that kind of stuff. If we're in a crisis, we don't just throw ideas away. Uh, you know, I'm, I, as I said, I'm, I'm prepared uh, to receive information to get an understanding of what the councillor was bringing forward. But in no way does that mean that the registry is something that's going to happen and that we're going to implement right away. That's definitely not the case. That was a portion of our conversation last week about uh, homelessness and encampments and affordable housing with Hamilton Mayor Andrea Horvath. Uh, this morning, we're going to focus on things that are being done in other countries that could probably help with our housing inaffordability, our housing affordability crisis in this city. Dr. Carolyn Witzman is a housing researcher and adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Witzman, good morning. How are you today? I'm very well, Rick. Let's jump right into it. What are other countries doing that we should be considering here? Well, the project that I'm leading, Rick, is a national project. So it's not just what's going on in other countries, it's what's going on in Canada. Um, But there are um, countries like Finland, uh, which has uh, reduced homelessness um, to a a tenth of what it was in uh, the... Uh, 20 years ago um, through increasing the amount of supportive housing, a housing first approach, which provides housing with appropriate uh, supports to uh, low-income people. Uh, There's um, France, which uh, over 20 years ago uh, created a target for municipalities of 20% uh, nonprofit housing, but more than that, they actually funded the nonprofit housing, which Canada presently isn't doing. And Paris at the moment is building to a third uh, non-market housing. So there's a lot of countries that are succeeding in uh, providing uh, low-cost housing, reducing homelessness, uh, and increasing housing supply. So when we look at what we're doing or not doing here in Canada, how do we correct the path that we're going down? Well, we have to start by being upfront about um, the rents or the housing costs that people need. 80% of households that are uh, living in unaffordable housing can only afford about $850 a month. Um, can that be supplied right now by the private market? Quite possibly not. Canada used to provide, um, uh, build about 10% of its housing as non-market, non-profit housing uh, in the 70s and 80s, and the federal government abandoned um, housing policy in the 1990s, devolved it to, uh, to provinces, provinces like Ontario didn't want to have anything of it, devolved it to um, cities who don't have the revenue streams or powers to do that effectively. So one place that we could start is in a revised national housing strategy that set targets and then funded the kinds of housing that are most needed, which at the moment are 
um, uh, non-market supportive housing. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dr. Carolyn Witzman, a housing researcher and adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. We're talking about housing affordability here in Hamilton and across the country and, well, really the, the lack thereof. Here in Ontario, we are opening up the green belts. There's a plan to build one and a half million homes over the next 10 years. Your thoughts on the plan that is being implemented by the Ontario government. Is it going to work? Well, I'm going to shock you, Rick. 1.5 million uh, homes isn't actually enough. Uh, Canada um, has is now building uh, less housing than it did in the 1970s when we had half the population. Uh, there's absolutely no need for that housing to happen in the green belt. What we need are better zoning policies to allow intensification where there is transit, where there are services in central cities. And then we need to use all available government land, municipal, provincial, federal, um, to um, uh, build um, non-market housing that can meet the needs of uh, those who are homeless. Because again, we're dealing with a 30, in some cases, 40 year deficit of housing in general and um, genuinely affordable housing more specifically. You're part of a Zoom event that's happening tomorrow night at 7. Where can we find the link and uh, what are you going to be talking about? Well, I think if you uh, Google housing affordability in um, uh, Hamilton, you'll find it. If you want more on the project that we've done that looks at housing need and policies across Canada, you can go to uh, heart, H-A-R-T dot um, ubc.ca. I know we've just scratched the surface, but we're plumb out of time. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, Rick. Dr. Carolyn Witzman is a housing researcher and adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. And there's really, as you can just tell by that five, six minute conversation, so many different things that have to be addressed. And we didn't even get to the skilled labor shortage, which is also impacting our plan to go forward with building new and not not just new homes, but new and affordable homes for residents of our community. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This debate has been, well, debated for years. Should we join the Catholic and public school systems? And it has it has percolated again because of the decision from the York Catholic District School Board uh, a week ago who made a controversial decision to not fly the pride flag. So some are saying, why do we even have the Catholic school system? Why don't we just have one school system? Kelly Gallagher-McKay is an associate professor and program coordinator of law and society at Wilfrid Laurier University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Kelly, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm fine. Thank you. I I would admit that there's not much political will behind doing this. I mean, no politician is going to stand up and say, all right, this is the way we're going to do things. Well, Mike Schreiner from the Green Party has has done just that, but uh, there's been a long building trend. Your 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 Twitter poll isn't far off uh, province-wide polls over the last at least decade, and um, it's something that places like Newfoundland and Quebec have already done. Back in 1867, remember that? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, of course not. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, there was a real sense that if Confederation was going to work, we needed to provide protection for a vulnerable minority, which was uh, Catholics, mostly Irish, in 
joining with the big um, Protestant majority in, in Ontario at the time. And so they put in protections in, into the British North America Act for denominational schooling, and that's Catholic schooling, as a sort of special minority rights protection. Um, that has persisted to this day. It actually got amplified by Bill Davis in the 80s, who started funding Catholic schools all the way through. But the trouble is, uh, and it's not just me saying this, it's like the UN Human Rights Commission, it's completely discriminatory and contrary to our current charter to provide religious education to just one group. Uh, So there's a big pushback about the idea that government money is funding uh, one particular religion to offer their own brand of uh, schooling and sort of separating students, discriminating against non-Catholic teachers. It's a huge employer that has a total priority on hiring Catholics. Sense that that's just, it's fine for people to have Catholic education, but it's weird for us to be paying for that and not for any other religion. I would imagine that it would be a big cost save if we had one system. Yeah, there's estimates on that, and I'm not an expert on on the cost savings, but Don Drummond, who is chief economist for TD, estimated over a billion dollars. Now, that was about 12 years ago, and there's been more recent estimates that take it higher. That's not meaning that we'd be closing schools left and right. Uh, In fact, I think the vast majority of Catholic schools would continue to operate. We'd be changing at the governance level, changing transportation in some places, smaller communities where there aren't as many students, you might see a closure. But by and large, the savings would be administrative and operational, not frontline schools. People would still get to keep their school. The question is, would, it, would we have a better school system? Well, that's a really important question. And I think uh, the answer is we would probably have a better system. We certainly have one more in sync with, uh, you know, the sense that we shouldn't be favoring uh, now the largest religious group in Ontario at the expense of everybody else. Kelly Geller-McKay is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Kelly is an associate professor and program coordinator of Law and Society at Wilfrid Laurier University. And we are uh, talking about the Long-wage debate over Catholic schools versus the public system. Um, I, I would I would imagine, too, that uh, this wouldn't be an easy fix or an easy move. I mean, in terms of not the political... The constitution? Yeah, not the political will, but yeah, we would have to change the constitution, right? I think, you're, I think that actually the big issue is a political one. Um, when we put in rules around how we change the constitution, which we only did in 1982, some kinds of changes specifically ones that only affect one province, like uh, what kind of school boards we have, were made quite easy to change. So all we need is a majority resolution in the uh, legislature here at Queen's Park in Ontario, uh, followed by a majority resolution of the federal parliament. And uh, we know that those federal resolutions would happen because that's what happened in Quebec and in Newfoundland. Now, I think nobody would say this was a minor change, uh, so you don't want to be sort of oversimplifying what would it take to sort of politically do this in a way that people perceive as legitimate. In in Newfoundland, they had a referendum, and 
73% of people uh, voted to end special funding. They had five groups of denominational schooling. And in Quebec, they had a, a motion in the legislature, but all all the MPPs or whatever they call them, MNAs, uh, voted uh, to to end funding for denominational schools. So it it takes a special level of political support, but that isn't written in the Constitution. The Constitution actually makes it quite easy to change. And that's on purpose because, uh, you know, it, it's seen as it's not like getting rid of the king that affects the whole country and the broad political uh, arrangements. And, you know, we do actually have equality rights and, and equal benefit of the law is a, a core constitutional principle. Yeah, it is a it is an interesting debate. I don't expect it to change anytime soon, but it is uh, it is interesting to talk about it. Kelly, thank you for your time today and and uh, providing your insight on this topic. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Rick. Kelly Gallagher McKay is an associate professor and program coordinator, law and society at Wilfrid Laurier University. I'm, uh, to be honest, I'm I'm now that my kids are out of school, I'm a little indifferent on this topic. But I will say this: I I would not bat an eyelash. If the government said, hey, you know what, we're, we're merging these two school systems. Well, you know, have at it. I, I attended Catholic school as an elementary student and a high school student, and I found it to be a wonderful experience. Would it have been much different in the public system? I, I wouldn't know. I don't think not that much, to be honest. And if you were to merge the things, and, you know, if those of you who want to retain the religious component to it, the Catholic component to it, you could have one school system and have a... Catholic education course, just like we did in high school. We, one of my, and I've said this before. One of my favorite topics in high school was world religion. It was an eye-opener, learning about all the different religions of the world. So that's one way to go about doing it. But I think we all know that this is not going to change anytime soon. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You know, water can be fun, whether it's in the bathtub or in the pool or in the lake or ocean pond, whatever the case is. But... We know that there's also a danger to it. We have to be mindful of that. And this discussion comes because, well, there's been a couple of drowning deaths in this province. Two children, both of them three years of age, that drowned in backyard pools. Tragic stories. And it has prompted, and rightfully so, fresh warnings about backyard pool safety. So let's have that discussion with Stephanie Bacalar with the Life Saving Society Ontario. Stephanie, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. How common is this? So in Ontario, we have about 150 to 170 drowning deaths each year. Wow. One thing that a lot of people aren't aware of is actually non-fatal drownings. Um, each year in Ontario, we see an average of 98 hospitalizations due to non-fatal drownings and about 555 emergency room visits. Wow. These non-fatal drownings can range from, you know, like a minor... Uh, I've taken on some water, having a little bit of difficulty breathing, to lifelong impairment. So it's a very serious issue. Yeah, I mean, 152 a year, given that, you know, our pools aren't open 365 days of the year, at least the woes in the backyard. Um, that's, that's a lot of deaths. What are some of the most common mistakes that we are making in our backyards? So to be clear, all of those drownings that I just mentioned are actually all of Ontario, any setting. So that includes bathtubs, lakes, ponds. Okay. About 12% of drownings occur in backyard pools. But it is a very common setting 
for young children, especially children under five. So we do need to take a lot of precautions. There are two things that we typically see with backyard pools. One, you're not actively supervising your kids when they're in the water. So to prevent a drowning when your children are supposed to be swimming, parents need to be vigilant. They need to be watching their children. Don't look at your phone. Don't pause to put on sunscreen, any of that. If you need to look away from the pool, even for a moment, ask someone else to actively supervise the kids in the pool. Drowning is really quick and silent. You often won't hear any splashing. There won't be calls for help. Someone slips under the water and that's sort of it. The other thing that we see really frequently, which is unfortunate, is children gaining access to backyard pools when they weren't supposed to. So what we can do to prevent those drownings um, is install four-sided fencing around your pool, put in a self-latching gate so that when you leave the area, it closes behind you, and put in door and gate alarms. So you're going to get alerted if your child is leaving your home and heading towards your pool. And so, I mean, these instances are really, when we're talking about backyard pools, 100% preventable. If, if we're being vigilant and, and keeping our eyes on our kids uh, or installing fencing, this is, this is just not going to happen. I believe so. And with that's sort of with the exemption of medical incidents. There are some times where someone might be in the pool and something else happens that causes um, a drowning as well. The other thing that people might not think about is how common it is for adults to drown when they're alone. A lot of adults swim on their own and about one third of adults who drown were swimming by themselves. But this, it gets so much higher as you get older. So about 75% of older adults drown while swimming alone. You always need to swim with someone else, no matter your age. So really employ the buddy system when you're in and around the pool. Yeah, one of our catchphrases is swim with a buddy, and it applies from zero to 100 plus. I don't care how old you are <laughs> or how good of a swimmer you are. That's the other thing. I'm a lifeguard. I've been swimming since I was a baby. I don't, I don't think I'll drown, but I still wouldn't swim alone. Because like I said before, those medical incidents, what if something happens? What if you start to have a heart attack or you have a seizure or something else? You don't know what's going to happen. Be safe, swim with a buddy. When it comes to kids, too, should they be wearing a life jacket? Or they, they, they should have some kind of flotation device up to at least a certain age, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. So there's two things we kind of want to do, especially in backyard pools. Things are a little more controlled. Certainly in open water settings, put on those life jackets for sure. <clears throat> and you always need to wear them in boats. In a backyard pool, if you're within arm's reach and you're actively like holding your child you're close enough that you can touch them. They're where they can touch the bottom. They can swim a little bit. Then maybe they can take some time without a life jacket on. That's okay. My girls are two and four. They don't always wear a life jacket, but they do sometimes. As long as it's sort of like a one-to-one parent-to-child and you can help that child, parents need to be aware too that if they get into a situation where I've got too many kids, could I react and keep everyone safe if something were to happen? So you have to ask yourself that. Life jackets are great. And I also encourage people to make sure that they're fit and they're done up properly. They need to be a nice snug fit, check the weight on them, Coast Guard approved, um, and make sure that they're zipped and buckled appropriately. It's not enough to just sort of have it around or have it sort of on you, but not done up nice and snug. With more and more people opening up their pools, hosting pool parties, going to pool parties this summer, those are great tips from Stephanie Bacalar from Life Saving Society Ontario. Stephanie, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for your time today.
Thank you. Uh, Great tips for you to uh, make your summer safe. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Convicted child killer Paul Bernardo had been moved from a maximum security prison to a medium security institution in Quebec. Correctional Service of Canada is doing whatever it can to avoid the public spotlight and to potentially set up something that may support them uh, making a decision that uh, the public would be outraged over, like granting the guy, you know, day parole or escorted temporary absences, because they're certainly getting them out of the spotlight. That's Scott Newark, vice chair and special counsel for the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime on the Roy Green Show on 900 CHML this weekend. And Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino also coming out and calling Bernardo's transfer shocking and incomprehensible. Yeah, those are those are two words we could use. I, I have some other words. Joseph Newberger, I'm sure, has a lot of words to say as well. He's a criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners LLP and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Joseph, how the heck did this happen? Well, with corrections, sometimes will move people around for population management. And given the um, psychological makeup of Mr. Bernardo, it's likely that in a jail, so a highly structured setting, he doesn't pose any type of management or risk issues. So they may be trying to move him to a high, medium, secure facility to free up space for other max uh, individuals who are much harder to control. That that may be behind it. I do want to say that Corrections Canada is not in a position to grant him day parole. That would have to be a decision of the parole board. So regardless of whether Corrections Canada would say is not a management issue uh, within the facility. This gentleman's overall risk profile and risk to the community remains exceptionally high because he still is a dangerous offender, and that risk profile will not go down until he's, you know, practically dead. I mean, it's just, it's off the charts. How is Paul Bernardo's life changing at a medium security facility as opposed to maximum security? What, what, what is the difference? So generally in a medium, for, for a regular offender, a medium secure facility would mean you're still behind um, a closed setting where you're in a, a, a jail and there's fences around, but you would have slightly more movement into general population and to the outer surrounding areas of the concrete building. Um, a maximum secure facility, you would be locked down pretty much on a range within a cell uh, for longer periods of time and not having access to uh, general population, or and you would have limited time to access the grounds for exercise and other things. So generally, medium means that you will have greater liberty within the structured setting and then just outside of the walls, but still within the fenced boundaries. Which kind of goes against, and I'm not sure if you heard the same thing, against the notion that this move was in part being done because it would um, mean a less of a chance of him to get attacked um, or assaulted by fellow inmates, it sounds like there's more of a chance of this. Yeah, so I don't know this facility in Quebec, um, and each facility is a little different. The ones we have in Ontario tend to be more on the U.S. structure, and so if you wanted to give somebody uh, more um, access to exercise and such, they could be exposed more easily and left in circumstances where guards can't get them get to them right away. Some of the older facilities or other facilities um, in Quebec have more of the, well, I'd say the old style. So you have a much more immediate access by jail guards. 
So that could be one of the issues because they're trying to get him more time so that he can mill about on his own and not be attacked. That's a possibility. But, you know, it's still something where, given his risk profile, the offending conduct, he still should be in maximum security. Joseph Newberger is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners LLP. And we're talking about convicted child killer Paul Bernardo being moved from a maximum security prison to a medium security facility in Quebec. Um, I know there are calls, including one from the lawyer representing the families of his victims, to get him back into a maximum security prison. What, what is the likelihood of that? I think that's a fair request. The federal government certainly can... Uh, seek to review the decision made by Corrections Canada. So a a move by Corrections Canada from a maximum to a medium secure facility is an administrative decision by a government agency that can be reviewed in court. So the um, uh, Department of Public Prosecutions, or what we call the Federal Department of Justice, uh, even the Solicitor General's office federally, could bring an application to review that decision and uh, the correction services would have to establish whether it was reasonable or not or if they made a mistake. And I think there could be quite a bit of pressure brought uh, by the uh, government lawyers to review that decision and then to reverse it to send them back to maximum secure facility. Joseph, we'll have to leave it there. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for chiming in. My pleasure. Have a good morning. You too. Joseph Newberger is a criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners LLP. The other part of this that stings is that this decision was really kept secret. I mean, this decision was made a week ago today. We found out on Friday. Oh, by the way, Canada's most notorious killer has been moved from maximum to medium security. And you can imagine if you're part of the victim's families, you're thinking, what? No. And they're getting re-victimized again. It's a horrible story, and Corrections Canada, I think, should be ashamed of themselves for making this decision. This is the last person we want to move out of maximum security. The absolute, I mean, he's not even on the list of being moved. Shouldn't be on the list. Let's hope this gets changed ASAP. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Tensions between China and the U.S. heightened this weekend when a Chinese warship sailed dangerously close to an American destroyer in the Strait of Taiwan. The incident was captured exclusively by Global News on board HMCS Montreal. And that's where we find Mackenzie Gray, national reporter with Global News, who joins us now on GMH. Mackenzie, what happened this weekend? Well, Rick, it was pretty crazy. We're on board HMCS Montreal. I'm talking to you right now from the flight deck in the middle of the East China Sea. And we were in the Taiwan Strait two days ago. And we were uh, going through with an American ship, the USS Chung-Hoon. It was leading kind of the procession. We're going in a straight line going forward, following behind them. And throughout our time in the South China Sea and Taiwan Strait and even now, there's been Chinese ships that have been shadowing us. But as soon as we got into the Taiwan Strait, Within the first couple of hours, the Chinese took a substantially more aggressive stance. Our cameras caught it. The Chinese ship went full speed right across the bow, the front of the boat, within 150 yards of hitting the Chung-Hoon, the American destroyer. I know 150 yards sounds like a long way, but having been out on the sea here for a little bit and talking with lots of folks on the boat and other former high-ranking Navy officials off the boat, that is extremely close. We interviewed the Canadian commander of the Montreal here, who watched the basically the exact same view as we 
from the bridge of the ship. And he said it was completely unprofessional and was intentional in what the Chinese were doing. So uh, very high drama here at a time when uh, we've seen the Chinese kind of ramping up these aggressive actions when American ships uh, and planes have been uh, in the South China Sea. As you mentioned, uh, these uh, the, these maneuvers are being called unprofessional, dangerous. Uh, has that added or escalated the tensions in that area? Well, I mean, I can only speak for what it's like out here. Uh, the captain, uh, the commander of the Montreal, uh, when we spoke with him, he said that at one point he saw one of the Chinese ships kind of looking like it was going to start to do the same maneuver on us. Uh, but they did not do that at that point in time. The closest they came to the Montreal was about a thousand yards away, uh, which is quite close. I mean, these are huge ships. Uh, so we got a very good look at one of the Chinese ships uh, that was following us. And uh, today, now that we moved into East China Sea, there was a big exercise and photo op this morning between two Canadian ships, an American ship, the same one that got cut off, but also the Japanese and the Australians joined us. And then there were three Chinese ships that were shadowing this. So we've been seeing the Chinese basically following uh, not only the other allied ships, but in particular the Canadian ship, as we've been with them for the last uh, 11 days now. Wow, exciting times. I know you got a busy schedule this weekend, but really appreciate uh, the uh, few minutes that we have with you this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Mackenzie Gray, National Reporter, Global News. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I just want to mingle with the American people, talk with some real folks, maybe get a Diet Coke or something. (laughs) Fine. But please, don't tell Mrs. Clinton. Jim, let me tell you something. There's going to be a whole bunch of things we don't tell Mrs. Clinton. Fast food is the least of our worries. He was one of the funniest guys and an amazing actor as well. Phil Hartman there uh, as former President Bill Clinton on Saturday Night Live. uh, The Branford legend tragically uh, being killed 25 years ago. But uh, here's here's a, a great story that I think we can all get behind. The brother of Phil Hartman, his name is Paul Hartman, is trying to get his sibling a posthumous Oscar. Let's find out more with Paul Hartman, who joins us now on GMH. Paul, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. You are uh, compiling some, well, some stuff that your brother had worked on years ago and are attempting to put it to you into a animated short film that could potentially win an Oscar sometime down the road. Tell us about this project. Uh, it's called Phil Hartman's Flat TV. It's based on a recording he did that was meant to be a voiceover demo for animation. It was produced by the late, great Chad Stewart from Chad and Jeremy. Um, and uh, it got lost because Phil was kind of in transition when he did it. And he got Saturday Night Live shortly after he finished the recording. It vanished. It ended up in somebody's backyard shed, I believe the uh, recording engineer, Brett Bacon. And it was found shortly after Phil's death. And my oldest brother had it released as an audio CD. And I felt like it could be animated. It was meant for animation. So uh, in the short category, it just crawls in at 45 minutes uh, in length so it qualifies in terms of being able to show the whole thing and we just have to finish it we've with the help of director brian lemay um a brilliant animator and of somebody who has channeled phil's artistic sentiment beautifully he took phil's doodle file 
and used as many characters from Phil's cartooning doodle file as he could in it. Like the Nesca Kane commercial, that is Phil's character design and his voice, and pure unedited Phil. And so we know this is a long shot. It's going to take a while. Raising money for these kind of things is hard. We're going to um, do a... Uh, documentary kind of around the making of it and Phil's art that will bring it up to a more saleable range in terms of raising money to get it completed. You're working with uh, co-executive producer Tracy Lamoury. You're looking for funding, obviously, as you just mentioned. Uh, we got about a minute. Why is this so important for you to do? Well, it's a healing process for me. Getting him star, his star on Canada's Walk of Fame was a big one. I mean, I accepted the award for him in Toronto and it was crazy getting a standing ovation from 5,000 people. It kind of blew my mind. And and then shortly after that, we got him as Hollywood star. And um, this just seems like a logical progression of that. And it's kind of the last thing in my quiver that I can really do for Phil. And it uh, heals me and it heals his fans. So, And that was something I learned in the process of getting him as stars, that the fans hurt as much as we do, and in some ways more sometimes. It would be phenomenal sometime down the road to see you on stage, Dolby Theatre, Academy Awards, accepting this award on behalf of everyone who's worked on it, including uh, the late, great Phil Hartman. Paul, thank you for your time today. Best of luck with us. Ah, thank you so much. That is Paul Hartman, the brother of the late Phil Hartman, working on this animated short that, who knows, could one day win Phil a posthumous Oscar. Wouldn't that be cool? Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.